Good morning. Today we're going to be looking at Luke chapter 15, verses 1 to 10. Uh, We're continuing our series called Engaging a Broken World, where we've been studying different interactions Jesus has had in the Gospels and how those interactions should shape the way that we engage the world around us. Uh, In Luke chapter 19, Jesus declares his mission statement, and that is to seek and to save the lost. It's the whole reason he came to earth. And this morning, we're going to look at the first two parables in Luke 15, the lost sheep and the lost coin. And next week, we're going to look at the, the parable of the lost sons. But we're going to begin to think about this idea of lostness. And Jesus uses these parables this week and next week to shatter our expectations when it comes to his mission. So if Jesus' self-proclaimed mission is to seek and to save the lost, what does that have to do with you and me? Who's lost? Is it me? Was it me? And what happens when the lost are found? How do we respond? Do we respond with joy? Or do we respond with indifference? Or even worse, with muttering? Uh, Please read with me Luke chapter 15, verses 1 through 10. Hear the word of our God. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and his neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me. I found my lost sheep. I tell you in that same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Or, suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and she loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me! I found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there's rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Please pray with me. Father, we thank you for your goodness and your grace. We thank you for your word. We thank you for this people in this place. We pray that you would meet with us during this time, that you would soften our hearts, that you would make us attentive to your word, that you would transform us by your kindness to us, by your love demonstrated to us in Jesus coming to rescue, to seek, and to save the lost. Help us to see our status before you and to turn to you and to follow you no matter the cost. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So what was the biggest and the best party that you've ever been to? Um, Up until last night when the Astros clinched game six, um, I would have said my wedding, and I'm still going to say that. Um, (laughs) But last night was probably number two, um, getting to celebrate with all of Houston, but, but I want you to think about it this way. The, the best party I've ever been to, it really was my wedding reception. All of our family and friends were there at the time. We had great food and great drink. There was great music. We danced. We laughed. We celebrated together. Now I want you to imagine that you're, you're going to what promises to be a great wedding, um, a great wedding reception, and you're trying to convince someone who hates weddings and hates the whole idea of marriage, you're trying to convince them to come with you. It's pretty hard, right? Now imagine trying to convince someone who doesn't like the bride and the groom, and doesn't like anyone that's going to be in the room with you. 
It sounds pretty miserable, doesn't it? Trying to talk to those people about convincing them to come to this wedding. Well, that's what we see Jesus doing in this text this morning. The Pharisees and the scribes, the teachers of the law, they're grumbling, they're muttering about Jesus and these sinners. And they say this, this man receives sinners and he eats with them. And Jesus responds with three parables explaining why they're celebrating, explaining why they're throwing a party. But even more than that, he's showing how God and his kingdom actually work. If we're honest, you and I sometimes, our hearts reflect the teachers of the law, the law and the Pharisees more than we care to admit. We don't like to celebrate sometimes when the lost are found. We don't like to see people come to know Jesus, which is so broken and weird. We'd rather see them judged. We don't want to be near them. We don't want to be associated with them. That's why when we see celebrities come to know Jesus, we immediately run to skepticism and self-celebration. But Jesus meets this head on, and he invites both the sinners and the teachers of the law to enter into his kingdom and to celebrate with him. So in looking at these first two parables this morning, we're going to be asking three simple questions. One, who is there? Two, what does Jesus teach them? And three, what do we learn from Jesus in dealing with sinners? So first, who's there? Verses one and two tell us that tax collectors and the sinners are drawing near to Jesus to hear him, and the Pharisees and the scribes were there grumbling, they're muttering, and they're shooting accusations at Jesus. So why are the tax collectors and the sinners drawing near to Jesus. They're drawn to him because he's a very different preacher from what they're used to. Remember, the tax collectors were the most hated people in this time, were even considered terrorists. And this term sinners, it points to people who didn't follow the Jewish religious customs. These were the, the religious and the social outcasts of the day, the morally inferior, the shocking, the unacceptable, the unwanted, the unlovely. To feel the weight of this for us, I want you to imagine who you consider to be the sinners around you. Who are the people that you avoid? Who are the people that you don't want your children to be associated with? Who are the people that don't measure up to your standard of holiness? Who are too messy? Who are too broken? Who are too disgusting? Maybe they don't vote like you. Maybe they cheat on their taxes or their spouses. Maybe they use bad language and they use people. Maybe they've blown up their lives through addiction. Maybe they listen to that kind of music and they watch those kinds of movies and shows. You know, who are the people that we avoid because we don't want to be associated with them? And yet, Jesus spends his time in the company of sinners, sharing meals with them. He didn't develop this public image of personal piety and holiness by keeping himself separate from the outcasts and sinners. Some of us think that's what true holiness really is about, what following God really means. It means separating from worldly people, distancing ourselves from them, distancing ourselves from sin and sinners as much as possible, even condemning certain sins and practices and those that participate in them. But Jesus isn't that way at all. He doesn't distance himself. He doesn't condemn them. He doesn't abuse them. He doesn't gossip about them. He doesn't rant about them on Facebook. Rather, he spends time with them. He has intimate table fellowship with them. Verse 2 says he receives and he eats with them. This is more than just a casual meal. 
And as we'll see, he speaks words of comfort, of dignity and grace to sinners. He gives them honor and dignity and respect and love. And what we'll see through Jesus' interactions, through this dignifying and this speaking grace, it actually turns people away from their sin and towards Jesus. So the sinners are there. They're responding to Jesus because, as one person said, grace and mercy are a far more effective means of creating love and devotion to Jesus than condemnation. So we see the sinners are present, but there's another group, the Pharisees and the scribes. The scribes were these teachers of the Old Testament, particularly the law, and the Pharisees were a group who saw themselves as the most devoted to God. They were wholly devoted to him. They were totally committed to living lives of complete holiness. They saw to it that they didn't break any of God's laws, and they didn't break any of their own that they made either. And here in verse 2, it says they grumbled or they muttered. Have you ever been grumbled at? Have you ever grumbled yourself? I do it all the time. Um, but it's pretty, it's pretty intense. It's usually done with this confused hatred and this furrowed brow in this look of just utter disgust. They grumble at Jesus because he's receiving and he's eating with sinners. In their minds, he's basically approving of them and their lifestyles. And because he's associating himself with these sinners, he's making himself unclean. He's guilty by association. He's complicit in their bad behavior. And they're upset because these sinners are following Jesus and it's destroying their concept of repentance. Repentance to them meant adopting their standards of holiness and law-keeping. But Jesus is showing them and us that true repentance is following Jesus and his way. They're mad. Why is he spending time with those people? Why is he not spending time with us? Why is he approving of and loving these people that don't care about God? that don't care about the things that we care about. They only care about themselves. So these are the two groups that are present, that are drawn near to Jesus, and Jesus responds with these two parables. So we're going to look very quickly at what Jesus teaches these two groups. So what did Jesus teach them? So one, remember that parables are stories. They're meant to capture our imagination. They're earthly stories with a heavenly meaning. They also usually teach some sort of moral behavior, but more than that, they reveal something about the kingdom of God and something about Jesus himself. You're supposed to ask when Jesus tells a parable, where do I fit in this story? So we're going to look briefly at these two parables and then we're going to talk about them. The first parable starts in verse 3. Jesus goes on to explain, if you have a hundred sheep, one becomes lost, wouldn't you leave the ninety-nine and go after that one that's lost? And when you found it, you joyfully put it over your shoulders. You go home, you invite your friends and your neighbors, and you celebrate and throw a party. And then he goes on to say, there'll be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need repentance. So in order to better understand this parable, we need to understand a little bit about sheep a little bit more. When, when I talk about sheep with you, when I say a sheep to you, what, do you, what comes to your mind? We typically revert back to children's books, right? I'm, we read books of Sawyer all the time. It's this sweet, this cuddly lamb, right? We're really happy to be compared to that. It's really cute. It's, you know, dancing and bouncing around with the other animals. But when the Bible calls us sheep, it's not a compliment. It's an insult, 
One pastor says it this way. He says, a sheep is a stupid animal. This pastor used to be a shepherd. He says, a sheep is a stupid animal. It loses its direction continually in a way that a dog or a cat never does. And even when you find a lost sheep, the sheep will wander to and fro and will not follow you home. So when you find it, you must seize it, throw it to the ground, tie its legs together, throw it over your shoulder, and carry it home. That's the only way to save a lost sheep. Then verse 8, Jesus goes on with the next parable about this woman who has ten silver coins. She loses one in her house. Now, coin... Um, a coin, a silver coin at that time was probably about a day's worth of work or more. So it's a pretty significant amount of money. It's not like a quarter that you'd lose in your house. And Jesus says, doesn't she light a lamp? She sweeps the house, seeking the lost coin diligently until she finds it. And when she does, she calls her friends and her neighbors together and they have a party. Jesus goes on to say, there's joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. I want you to imagine that you're not in your kitchen um, and you drop a quarter, like I said. Uh, think more of it as you lost your paycheck, um, and you don't have direct deposit, and you just you don't have your paycheck. Um, but I don't want you to imagine that you're in your house. The houses then were built of stone, and because there was no glass, each house only had one or two tiny little slit windows that let in the tiniest bit of light. And because the floors were made of stone, There are usually big gaps and cracks so that it would be very easy and very frustrating to lose a coin of significant worth here because there's many places for it to go and you didn't have much light at all to find it. So, we have two parables from Jesus. Something's lost, someone goes after it, and when they find it, they throw a party. What's Jesus teaching us? He's revealing something about us, something about himself, and something about the kingdom of God here. Jesus is showing us the reality of all of our hearts and our lives apart from him. We're all lost. We all wander off. We all pursue our own desires, and we all desperately need to be rescued. Remember, you can't just tell a sheep to go home, to go this way or that. You can't just set it in the right direction like a dog and just go home. You have to wrestle it down to the ground. You have to bind it up. You have to tie its legs together, throw it over your shoulders, and bring it home yourself. That's the only way it's going to work. And a coin, when you drop it, doesn't magically just bounce up into a jar when it falls so that it finds itself. What does that tell us? It tells us that we're all lost in our sin. We don't need a good teacher We don't need to learn just a self-help program and follow its steps. We need a Savior. We need to be rescued. But what else is shocking, especially to the Pharisees, is that we don't contribute anything at all to our being rescued. We can't earn God's love or Jesus' favor or rescue. It is entirely of his grace and his grace and love alone and his commitment to us that rescue us. It's not our goodness It's not your good record. It's not your performance. It's grace. Isn't that the best news you've heard today? We read early in in the service, we all have, like sheep, gone astray. That is our status of our hearts apart from the goodness of God's rescue in us. But what we learn about Jesus here is that he cares for the lost. And he is desperately 
eager to find them. Jesus calls those of us who are sinners, and that's all of us, to see our sin, to see our status as lost sheep and lost coins, and he calls us to repent, to follow after him. But that challenge to repentance is overshadowed by the emphasis on God's enduring and faithful and rescuing love and grace. He's joyfully willing to count the cost of searching for and finding the lost because he wants to celebrate. He wants the angels in heaven to celebrate. He wants you and me, his people, to celebrate. Jesus takes time, and he's patient, and he goes to great lengths to find those who are his. He doesn't write off lost sinners. He joyfully pursues them, even to his own death. So what is Jesus teaching them in the story and us about the kingdom of God? He's teaching us that God's kingdom celebrates and rejoices at the lost coming to faith and repentance to Jesus. God's kingdom doesn't rejoice more for those who don't need to repent because they have their lives all together for those who look at their lives and they think, I'm pretty good. God is proud to have me on his side because I'm so faithful, because I'm so obedient, because I'm so holy, because I don't see those movies, I don't hang out with those people, I don't go to that school, I don't vote like those people. I'm here every time the church is open. I'm involved in this many Bible studies. These are not the ones that are celebrated in God's kingdom. Those that are celebrated in God's kingdom are those that know they're lost. Those that know they're broken and are in desperate need of being rescued. And because of that, they come to Jesus in humble reliance and repentance, seeking to follow after him. So lastly, what do we learn from Jesus in dealing with sinners? We've already highlighted that Jesus faithfully and desperately chases after sinners He delights in seeking them out and in saving them. But I want you to consider for a second the shepherd. Again, when I I ask you to think of a shepherd, you know, what does that shepherd look like? In our, you know, storybook Bibles and recent popular artwork depicting the story, the shepherd's portrayed as this, you know, somewhat effeminate young man with long, wavy hair, someone who it looks like has never really done a hard day's work in his life. His fingernails are clean, um... But if you look at the churches, the early churches' the description and depiction of this, this shepherd, you'll see, one, that the sheep isn't a cute, cuddly lamb. It's this full-grown, gnarly animal. And the shepherd is blood-stained. He's tired. He's dirty. He's hunched over because of the weight of this animal on his shoulders, and he's exhausted from carrying it home. The early church saw the cross in this story. Jesus, as our good shepherd, endured pain and suffering and humiliation and death all so that he could claim us as his own and bring us home to him as his children. And why? Because Jesus desperately loves his lost sheep. We've seen this demonstrated in the contrast between the way the scribes and the Pharisees treat and think about sinners in the way Jesus does. The scribes and the Pharisees They've reduced people to their outward behavior, to their sin. They see nothing else besides it. So because they only see people as as sinners and broken and disgusting and dirty, they dismiss them. And as Christians, we're often tempted 
And we give in more than we care to admit to this temptation to be judgmental and to be dismissive. You know, think about it. We say, that person's an addict. That person's a liberal. That person's a fundamentalist. That person's a Pharisee. That person's a progressive. That person's a homosexual. That person's a Jehovah's Witness. That person's an adulterer. That person's a cheater. If you're not a follower of Jesus this morning, this could be why. Maybe you've been burnt and you've been hurt and you've been pigeonholed. If this is your experience with the church, I want you to hear that we are sorry. We're wrong. We're not reflecting God and his grace for you. But what's amazing is Jesus never does this. He's constantly treating those who are sinners, the unclean, the unwanted, the unlovely, the outsiders. He's constantly giving them dignity and respect. So we learn from Jesus that that we must see beyond the brokenness of people, beyond their blatant sin, and treat them with honor and with love. Jesus had a soft spot for the broken, the marginalized, for the moral failures, for the crooks and the prostitutes, for the religious community's punching bags. He's willing to be misunderstood. He's willing to be caricatured. He's willing to be maligned. And he's willing to be rejected and to die for it. You and I think, well, what if we send the wrong message? What if people think we're endorsing sin? What if we're, we're seen as endorsing their behavior? What if we're guilty by association? What if people think we've compromised our purity and we've strayed from God's law? What if people start to associate me as a glutton and a drunkard? What if, what if, what if? Scott Sauls writes this. He says, it's better to be lumped in with the gluttons and the drunks than with the image-conscious Pharisees. The closer we are to Jesus, the further we will be from sin. Likewise, the closer we are to Jesus, the closer we're going to be to sinners. So close that Pharisee types are going to assume that we're guilty by virtue of our associations. Genesis 1 says that we're all made in the image of God. That means every person is worthy of dignity and respect and honor and and value. No matter how disfigured you and I are by sin or those around us are disfigured by sin, because God's image is still present, every person, no matter who they are, what they've done, what's been done to them, is to be treated with respect and dignity. Are we able, are you and I able to, to look beyond the outside of a person, beyond their race, beyond their gender, their economic status, their culture, their clothes, their political leanings, most importantly, their particular sins, their idols, their false beliefs, their bad doctrine. Can we see God's image beaming out past our differences and our problems? We often want to condemn and to teach and to convict people of their sins, but that's not our job. And, when, we re- and when, when they react negatively, we think we're being persecuted for following Jesus. But we never see Jesus smashing people for their sins, dismissing them, being hyper-offended by them, treating them like projects that need to be fixed. Jesus never uses shame to bring someone to repentance. Jesus is gentle and gracious and respectful to broken people. And we're called 
as his church, as his people, to mirror Jesus and to honor others in that way too. Even and especially when that image bearer is horribly defaced by sin. If Jesus is completely perfect and holy and he doesn't treat sinners that way, how can you and I, who are on a level playing field with every human being around us, before God in our brokenness, how can you and I act that way? Ultimately, these two parables this morning, they're invitations. They're invitations to join the celebration with Jesus. We just prayed, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is what Jesus is doing here in these parables. He's bringing the reality of heaven to earth and he's calling us to as well. We hear twice in verse 7 and in verse 10, all of heaven is filled with joy and they celebrate and they hold a party every time a sinner repents and follows Jesus. Does that joy and that attitude and that that celebration, does that characterize you this morning? Does it characterize our church? Are we known for being a people that celebrate well. The invitation stands this morning. If your heart is like that of the Pharisees, the invitation is to remember who you actually are. A lost sheep and a lost coin in desperate need of God's grace and forgiveness and rescue. We have to remember the lengths that Jesus went to make us his, to to bring us to himself, and to celebrate that afresh. If you're not a Christian this morning, if you've never turned to Jesus as your Savior and your King, as the one who loves you, as the one who died for you, as the one who comes searching after you to rescue you, the invitation for you is to come home. Turn to Him. Come and celebrate with us. Let Him take hold of you and join this party. Please pray with me. Father, we thank You for Your goodness. We thank you for your grace. We thank you that Jesus came to seek and to save the lost and to rescue broken people. We are all needy and in need of you. We ask that you would meet with us at your table in this time, that we would taste and know and experience your grace, that it would fill us, that it would satisfy us, that it would change us. We praise you for your goodness to us. We thank you for this place. It's in Christ's name that we come. Amen.